0: Hello everyone. I hope you are all doing well. It's Monday afternoon, and normally I would have uploaded the sermon yesterday afternoon. But when I came back from lunch, I discovered that for whatever reason, uh, my computer had not recorded the sermon, or and I'm not even sure that the live stream went out like I thought it was doing. So there was no sermon to upload to the website or to our podcasting service. So I know some of you i uh, like to go back and re-listen to the sermon and pick up some things maybe you missed. Uh, some of you maybe haven't heard it yet, and then still others of you aren't even in this church and like to hear the sermons as well. So I decided I needed to go back and re-record, uh, or perhaps record for the first time, yesterday's sermon. So uh, that's what you're going to hear in just a few minutes. I'm going to be doing this in my office, so it obviously sounds different than what would be happening in the sanctuary, and let's just admit up front, it's a little artificial too uh, because, well, there's not a congregation here, and it's me in my office preaching, in effect, uh, to myself, I guess you might say. Even so, what's going to follow here is uh, yesterday's Lord's Day sermon, Uh, and so I hope this is a benefit to you. I hope this is useful to you, and so uh, there we go. Okay, so last week we ended the section of Exodus known as the Book of Ordinances, that is the case laws that are attached to the Ten Commandments and flow out from those same commandments. And apart really from the week of Easter, we've spent the entirety of this year working through the law, and so this week is a change of tone and really a change of emphasis. There's a lot to chew on uh, today with this passage, so let me just Quit talking and go ahead and read for us. This is picking it up with Exodus chapter 23, starting with verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say... Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the lands become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for this time that this would be a good meditation for us on your word, that this would be useful for us in teaching us to glorify your name and teaching us to walk in your ways and teaching us to love you most. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, before we get into some of the details and questions of the text, one of the things I find fascinating in passages like this one is the interplay between what theologians call divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty is God's rule over all things. So, for example, God doesn't just know what's going to happen in the future as if he's got a crystal ball and can see into it. No, he determines the future. If you think of reality as... God's grand movie, and this is just a metaphor, it can break down pretty easily, but if you think of it as God's grand movie, well, God is the story writer, and the director, and the producer, and the cinematographer, and the set designer, and uh, the one who's paying for the whole production. It's his movie, every last bit of it. Humans are the actors who were created to respond to his script and direction and live out the story he's telling. Now, that doesn't mean that humans are puppets any more than actors in a movie are puppets. No, humans were created to respond to God's direction and contribute and partner with him in his story. That's key. It's his story, you see. But he wants to include us, even partner with us in the telling of it. Like with any Hollywood production, there is the possibility that the actors might rebel against the director, I mean, thinking they, they know better, trying to make themselves the center of the story or hijack the story altogether. And of course, this is what actually happened. You know, even so, humans as actors in God's story are given the opportunity, really the honor and responsibility to respond to God's direction in faith and trust and obedience and love, seeking His glory, which is just another way of saying we value His story, we value Him and His goodness above our own, and we trust this God. Or, humans can reject God and try to make a life on their own, glorifying themselves. It's a real choice, and as God's people, we face it every moment of every day. Even so, God's story will not be undone. It cannot be hijacked and taken over. God will tell the story he wants to tell because he's sovereign. He's the king. This is his world. As you look at our passage, God promises to give Israel a land of their own, to conquer and drive out the current inhabitants of that land and to bless Israel with fruitfulness and abundance. They needed only to listen to God and walk in his ways. They need to follow his script and his direction. Think back to how we talked about the Ten Commandments as wedding vows. God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt in order to be his treasured people, really his bride in covenant with him. This goes all the way back to the promises God made to Abraham. As his people, as his bride, as the children of Abraham, Israel was to walk faithfully with this God because it was not an open marriage. Everything that God had promised to Abraham about being a mighty nation with a land of their own, enjoying God's presence, and in turn being used by God to be a blessing to the world, overcoming and undoing Genesis 3 and the effects of Babel in Genesis 11, all of that was being fulfilled. So everything God offers in this passage, the story he's telling repeats and builds upon Genesis 1 and 2, as well as Genesis 12 and 15 and 22. God always begins by offering himself and all the blessings that come with him. And then he asks for faithfulness in return. And now, Israel as the descendants of Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is the lineage of Eve that looked forward to the coming Redeemer, Israel, as as part of this long lineage, is at the same crossroads faced by those who had come before. Now, Israel can look back to all that history, even to recent history, and see everything God had done. I mean, this people could look up on the mountain and see God's presence in the smoke and fire, hearing His voice, and choose to accept God's proposal of marriage and all the benefits that come with that, or not. And when God talks about faithfulness and obedience in this passage, he doesn't have in mind perfection, as in a sinless people who could do no wrong. Of course not. It's, it's why he gives the sacrificial system. God knows who he's marrying. That's why included in his promise of life is a future resurrected life. I mean, after all, in our passage, God says he would give his people long life, but still they will die. No, God has in mind wholeheartedness to him. It's why he highlights not rebelling against him or making covenants with the people of Canaan or worshiping their gods. I mean, that's all marriage language. So again, think of this in terms of marriage, of your own marriage. I mean, will there be arguments in a marriage or crosswords or frustrations or what have you? Of course there will be. In this life, you know, there is no such thing as a sin-free marriage, let alone sin-free anything. But what enables a marriage to not just survive, but to flourish, is wholeheartedness to the other. Otherwise, there will be no grace or forgiveness or repentance. God is wholeheartedly for his people. It's why he does not hesitate to forgive and why he rejoices when his people repent and invites us to seek him over and over again. It's because God is wholeheartedly for his people that we obey him. And we don't obey hoping to gain his acceptance and love and salvation. No, it's it's actually just the opposite. It's because we already have it. So I don't keep my wedding vows hoping that one day my wife will see fit to love me and eventually will agree to marry me. I keep my wedding vows because she loves me now, is committed to me now, and is already married to me now. That's the same thing that's in view in our passage. This is the story of God's love for his creation and his wholeheartedness towards his people who he's asked to marry him. Will his people respond in love? Will they follow their king's commands? Will they act according to the director's script? This is the question put to them over and over again. Well, that takes us to our text in particular. So. Let's look at verse 20. Verse 20 is interesting because God says he will send his angel before Israel to guard and lead his people, even to conquer their enemies. But 21 tells us that this angel is different. This angel speaks with God's voice, and rejecting this angel's word is to reject God himself. Why? Because God has put his name in this angel. For God to put his name on something means that he has put his presence there. This is why taking the name of the Lord in vain is more than what words we use. No, it's to take his presence lightly. This is similar to what happens in the burning bush of Exodus 3, where the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the midst of the burning bush, which was basically heaven come to earth, complete with the ground being holy, and the angel speaks as the Lord, that is, as Yahweh. And the angel doesn't just repeat God's word to Moses like a prophet might or how we can you know, read God's words to each other. No, God speaks through this angel in the first person, like with chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see something similar happen with the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5. And it's just like the word of the Lord that came to Abraham in a vision in Genesis 15. Did Abraham see words or a parchment or or scroll in that vision. No, he saw what looked like a human speaking to him. This angel is a visible representation of God in a human-like form. It is God's presence mediated through this angel. Now, of course, this leads some to ask if this was, in fact, Jesus. And my honest answer is, I don't know but it certainly anticipates the Son of God taking on flesh in the Incarnation. At root, what this means is that God would lead Israel in the conquest of the land. His presence was with them through this angel, and he would go before them. That's why the people must not rebel against the angel. You see, to rebel against God, then, is to say, we will fight for ourselves. We are fine all on our own. It's like the quote from George MacDonald from the beginning of the worship service. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I am my own. That's the nature of sinful humanity. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's Israel. In fact, that's us too. Notice also the language in verse 20 that Psalm 23 actually picks up on, as does Jesus in John 14. God has prepared a place for his people. You see, God knows what he's doing. He's the director of this movie. Like Adam and his placement in the garden. And that's actually how it's phrased, that God placed Adam in the garden. Well, God has made a place for his people in Canaan. Verse 22 highlights again the need for faithfulness and obedience to God's direction. And this will be highlighted again in verses 24, 25, 31, 32, and 33. So clearly it is very important. God promises to conquer Israel's enemies. He actually reiterates his promise to Abraham that those who bless Abraham, God will bless, and those who curse Abraham will be cursed. So it will also now be for Israel too. But God requires Israel, as his bride, to trust him and follow his lead. Now, this is not an easy request in light of what God says in verses 23 and 24. Now, it'd be one thing if God said, The angel will go before Israel to conquer the land. Full stop. But in fact, he says, And brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. That is, the angel would bring Israel face-to-face with all these people groups, like he's dumping them right in front of them. Now to us, these are just foreign ancient peoples. To the Israelites, these are people that descend from Ham, Noah's son, who, like the serpent of Genesis 3, tried to overthrow his father, and so his lineage was cursed because of it. You can find that in Genesis 9 and 10. And what's more, these groups are connected to both Genesis 6 and Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. So in other words, if Israel was the seed of the woman, these groups are the seed of the serpent. And as you see with the report of the spies in number 13, number 13, if you'll remember where the spies were sent out by Moses to go you know, case the land and check it out before they were to take it, Well, they weren't just foreigners there. No, they they had superior fighting forces, including giants like Goliath, who were in league with spiritual evil set against God. So it is as though Israel has gone from the evil of Egypt to perhaps a worse evil in Canaan. Only God absolutely conquered the Egyptians. And here, as he promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, he would bring judgment on these wicked people too, through Israel. There's that pattern of divine sovereignty and human responsibility again. God will blot out these wicked people through the actions of Israel. As an aside, some critics of Christianity have found statements like this one to be repugnant. I mean, how can God call himself good when he promises to blot people out? Consider that when he made the covenant with Abraham, God was not yet unwilling to punish these very same people groups who were, at that time, actually very wicked. I mean, nothing had changed about them. No, they had, in fact, compounded their evil. Yet God was patient with them. And one of the greatest indicators of God's kindness and his grace is that he gives people time. He does not instantly act on sin. I mean, sometimes he does, but more often than not he allows time for repentance. The time between God's statement to Abraham and our passage is at least 500 years. I mean, think about how much has happened between say 1521 and 2021 for us. I mean, God is long suffering Even with very wicked people, far more patient than God's critics are with him or with anybody else for that matter. But he will eventually bring judgment because he is just and he is good. In verses 24 through 26, God again gives Israel the choice of who to serve. If she serves the gods of the people she's supposed to conquer, it will end badly. In fact, it will end in death for Israel. I mean, think about it. What what had all those people gained by serving other gods? Death. You know, serving anyone or anything other than the true God always brings death. It just does. This is like God saying to Israel, listen, if you act like those people in that land and warm yourself by sticking your head in an oven, it's going to kill you. But what sinful humanity says is, wait a minute, who are you? Tell me what to do. Oh, you're so oppressive. You can't tell me what to do. If I want to stick my head in an oven, guess what? I'm going to do it. Now, I'm intentionally making this idiotic. This is a ridiculous illustration, but this is precisely what sinful humanity wants to do. Only we do it in the name of love and freedom, protection, self-expression. And sometimes we call it common sense or happiness or, or what have you. So can you really warm yourself by sticking your head in an oven? Well, yes, you can. But when modern people do the equivalent foolishness in the name of whatever is fashionable right now, we ought to ask, how's that working out for you? And it's good for us to check to see if we're actually following suit with that too. What God promises Israel instead is life. And it's actually overwhelming. If they will remain faithful in their marriage to him, he will bless them with food, health, children, and long life. And they have no reason to doubt him on this because he had already shown he could do it. I mean, just think about it. He brought plagues on the Egyptians while protecting Israel from them. He took Egypt's firstborn sons while protecting Israel's children. He took away Egypt's food and water supply, even as he miraculously fed Israel in the wilderness. But it's more than this. This is what God offered to Adam and Eve. You see, God wanted them to enjoy the fruit of the land and the fruitfulness of children. He wanted them to thrive and to cultivate his good creation. And what God promised to Israel, God has now promised in his son, Jesus, only it's more than a long life on a good plot of land. It's eternal life free from sin and death in a resurrected body on a redeemed earth where we enjoy God's presence face to face forever and together with each other as he always intended. That's the story. That's the story God's telling. And here's the thing. What God offers in terms of happiness, contentment, meaning, fulfillment, the promise of life, the world tries to offer that too. Only it's by counterfeit means. you know. God says, I made you for myself. You can only find rest and meaning and life in me, and apart from me is death. Modern life says, you need to be affirmed just as you are. You don't need to change. The world needs to change to meet you. You need to define yourself. You need to choose your own path. And submitting yourself to anybody, especially this God, that's what death is. I mean, is there anything in modern advertising that isn't trying to sell you some version of the good life? I mean, what was the serpent trying to sell Eve in the garden? A counterfeit. You know, so for good reason, God warns Israel over and over again not to give in to the vision of the good life that had brought death to the people of Canaan, because that vision is really enticing. In verses 27 through 31, God explains how his plan of attack for how he will give the land over to Israel is going to work. Verses 27 and 28 are essentially two vivid ways of saying the same thing. God will strike terror into the hearts of Israel's enemies and give them over to Israel. And the Jewish uh, commentator Umberto Casuto notes that the, the word for hornet in modern Arabic has this carryover meaning that we actually see here. In the Hebrew, as in when a group of people are suddenly struck by dread and terror. And it makes sense, right? I mean, if you kick a hornet's nest, people will instantly run from that. I mean, God says he will put his terror on them in such a way that Israel will grab them by the back of their necks. That's how soundly they will be defeated, and you can get the image there. But this isn't going to happen all at once. It's going to be a process. The reason is that he doesn't want the land to become desolate, as in an uncultivated wilderness, or for it to become overrun with too many predatory or dangerous animals. So instead, God wants Israel to take the land little by little and to multiply as people as they do it, so to fill out the land. And again, this is a repetition of God's plans for humanity in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to have dominion and stewardship over it. This isn't merely a story about God giving a slave people a new start on life. This is God restarting humanity through Israel. This is further down the path of the promise made to Eve. What God has promised to do for Israel, He will eventually do for the whole world through Israel's Redeemer, Jesus. Well, the passage ends was stating again that Israel was to be in covenant with God alone. Israel was not to be unequally yoked with these other people or serve their gods or even allow them to continue to live in the land for the simple reason that Israel would be led astray by them. Now, this is not to say that God was against foreigners and immigrants. I mean, clearly not. I mean, we, we've seen throughout the case laws how Israel was to show kindness to foreigners and implicit. And the covenant with Abraham is God's purpose of using Israel as a conduit of his grace to the world. So what he's after here is different. It's an issue of who Israel will partner with, who she will yoke herself to, and how those choices will shape her. When I was a youth pastor, and this is going back, what, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, I got a call from the parents of a young lady in our youth group, and they were freaking out over what they had found on her phone. I think she was maybe a freshman or a sophomore in high school. And I'm not going to go into detail about what they found, but it was explicit. And what they found should freak out any Christian parent. They wanted me to come have an intervention with their daughter. And as I quickly found out, it was much worse than what they had initially told me. As the conversation wore on, it was apparent that the young lady had grabbed onto friends who were pursuing self-destructive practices. They were all beautiful, popular girls who looked healthy and vibrant, and many of them attended youth groups. But if you look past the veneer of Christianity, it was clear that they were handing their bodies and hearts over to things really to people that were corrupting them and what they thought was cool and of course they did all of this stuff in order to fit in and remain part of their group well what they thought was cool was you know if left unchanged if they kept on that path it was something that could scar them for life or much worse you know teenagers don't realize that their actions may affect them for life That a decision made at the age of 13 can dog them their whole life or even lead to their early death. And parents, you know, rarely want to face the reality that their children aren't children anymore. And so they rather ignore what's happening or just hope for the best, which is a terrible strategy, by the way. Or worse, they enable it because they want their kids to be happy and to fit in. And the thing is, you know, the desire to fit in or to be part of something is natural. All of us desire this. I I want to fit in. But when group membership requires, you reject your God and his teaching. You have to question whether that group or those friends actually love you or rather love what they can get from you. And so when the parents asked me what I thought they should do, I told them, break off her relationships and her friendships with these people. And the young lady immediately balked and said, no way. And the parents quickly followed her lead. The parents knew how bad things were. I mean, they called me about this. But they chose to let their daughter remain yoked to people who were a snare to her, who enticed her. And it was all for the sake of popularity and fitting in. And frankly, you know, the mom love being one of the popular girl moms too. As Proverbs teaches, it is far better to have few friends, maybe even just one friend, who will encourage you to godliness than it is to have many friends who lead you away from God. As James says, you know, friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. I mean, this was... 12, 13 years ago, long before the advent of video sites like, say, TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat or or big group text change. So let me just ask, you know, young people, what would you do if your parents had total access to your phones and everything you've used them for over the last year? I mean, all the texts, all the videos, all the likes, parents, what would you do if you found Your child was yoked to people who were leading your kid down the path of friendship with the world and self-destruction. What story would you choose? God's story or the world's story? Which vision of the good life do you really want? You know, this isn't just a question for young people, but really for all of us. I mean, who are your friends? Who are you yoked to? And what do they want for you? And what do they want from you what do they require from you to be their friend because every friendship comes at a cost let me say that again because I don't think people realize that every friendship comes at a cost see both God and the world demand sacrifice but only God demands it after he first loved us and sacrificed his son for us the world says give up your body and your heart to me, and then I will love you. This is exactly what Israel faced too. And you know what? It's really hard. It's hard not to give in to the world. It's hard not to give in to the social pressure to fit in. It's hard to sometimes walk a lonely road of isolation because we refuse to do as the world does. And as our phones now scream at us, you're missing out. You're missing out on all the fun and all the happiness, and your life would be so much better if you just joined in with us. You know, and the world rarely looks like Hitler. It usually looks like something beautiful that says, hey man, did God really say that? Church is for Sundays, man. Just live a little. Lighten up. Don't you want to be part of us? You know, I think it's far harder to be a faithful Christian in your teen years now than it was when I was that age. And I'm incredibly sympathetic to what young people face today. It's overwhelming and it's isolating. Parents, your kids need you now more, more than you think they do. If you will not disciple them, if you will not be for them, they will go looking for it somewhere else. And they will go looking for it with people who do not have their best interests at heart, who are often sometimes their friends. Parents, do not give up on your kids. Do not lose interest in your kids. Speak to them. Be candid with them. Be honest with them. And all of that feels overwhelming at times, but that's just it. You know, it feels like we are often alone, that we are on an island, all by ourselves. But you know what? We're not. We were bought for a price. We belong to our God who rules over all things and he has given us, in turn, each other to encourage each other to walk with God and to bear each other's burdens. So church, you are not alone. You're not. Parents, you are not alone. Kids, you are not alone. Your God is with you. And you know what? We are with you too. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us in this church and all of us who are listening to this now that you bless and keep us, that you work in us through your Spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear that we might choose you over the world, that our hearts might be wholehearted in response to how much you have loved us and you have kept us for yourself. May we walk in your ways always. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.